everyone, and welcome to another episode of Chillin' in the State House, the chillest, most state house podcast on the marketplace today. I am Andrew Ball, state government reporter for the Topeka Capital Journal, joined by my friend and colleague, Jason Tidd. Jason, how are you, sir? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, nice and quiet here at the state house after we uh, got to sleep off the previous week. Yeah, if you're wondering why we didn't have a podcast last week, it's because last Friday, literally everything was happening. I don't think that's really even an exaggeration. All the bills, all the potentially ethic, ethics investigations, everything was happening. Except for the bills that didn't pass. And we'll get to those in a moment. But first, we are with the man to help us break it all down, friend of the podcast, the Associated Press, John Hanna. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Jason. John, we are honored you are here on your day off to come podcast with us. Yes, well, you know, I, how could I resist? Chilling in the state house waits for no man or woman or gender neutral Cre- person. Creature, yeah, not it, even creatures. Turtles, dogs, cats, golems, trolls. <laughs> yes. Oh no, we're not Orcs. opening that. We're not opening that can of worms again. <laughs> um, well. It was, it's been a busy last week. I, I personally have spent most of my last week in the lovely confines of Kansas City, Kansas, where the Republican passed, a Republican authored uh, congressional maps were on trial, quite literally, in Wyandotte County District Court. Expect a ruling on that in the coming weeks. But we are here to talk about things the legislature has been up to. And, you know, it's funny. Um, Talking to reporters' leadership from both houses, kind of used the old canard that before they came back for the last week of regular session, that oh we we only need to pass a budget and pass the the, the legislative and state board of education maps. That's just really they didn't do too much more than that. It turned out. Um, maybe we maybe we should first focus though on the things that they did get across the finish line, Jason. I'm going to look at you to get us started on that. What are some of the things lawmakers actually succeeded in doing? Well, they succeeded in getting a budget across the line. Uh, It was the one that had the 5% increase for state worker pay raises. Their first in what, three, four years? I believe they got back-to-back pay raises in 2017 and 2018. And before that, it had been over a decade. So, But when it comes to budgeting, uh, people who have been here longer than me, John, can you explain how a budget works at the state level? Because my understanding is this is not the final budget. No, this is a good chunk of the budget. There will be another bill to come called the Omnibus Appropriations Act. That is an old title for that bill. They used to cut the budget up into 15 or 16 bills and this last bill was a sort of catch-all to correct mistakes and add in last minute spending for you know new programs that they authorize that sort of thing uh over time it kind of became um occasionally where some big decisions were made so that bill will be drafted the week before they come back Then they come back April the 25th. However, the budget they did pass does not have school funding in it. 
And they have not, and they, that is one thing they have not done yet. That will right. get left to omnibus because they, there's, talks broke down between the House and the Senate. There is a bill in conference. There was a conference committee report, but it it was clear that there were some issues about uh, uh, college scholarships, the the Promise Act, they call it, and whether out of state students should be able to get. Those scholarships, they're at, also... At Kansas Community and Technical Colleges. Right, at Kansas say. Community and Technical Colleges. There are also questions about open enrollment. There are all, uh, a policy of where where you can send, if you're a parent, you can send your kid to any school you want, whether it's within your district or not. Um, there are also changes in the, the program that provides scholarship for at-risk kids, to go to private school. So all of those all of those policy things have been tied up with school funding and that has yet to be done and that I think about 6.2 billion dollars if I'm remembering the number I saw correctly somewhere in there. It's the single biggest item in the state budget. Well, so we we said they passed a budget. They couldn't even quite do that fully. <laughs> uh, one note on the budget that I thought was interesting was that the conference committee report, which was negotiated by primarily Republicans, uh, actually spends more than what Governor Laura Kelly, a Democrat, had asked for in her budget proposal. But I, is that common for lawmakers to put more in a budget than what the governor asks for? I would say it depends. Uh, it, it depends from year to year. Often they, they put a little less. Often they see a hole to plug. Sometimes um, sometimes it's more of an accounting thing. There's a, a proposal the governor had to spend, for example, excess funds on, um, on – um, there's a school funding payment that's supposed to be made at the end of June, and it's been moved over because of past financial woes. It's been moved over into July, so it goes into the next fiscal year. She proposed backing it up to June again. That's something that could make that fiscal 23 budget look bigger. That's that's you know that's the kind of thing that is out there. Um, the but yes, yeah, some at parts of the budget they may have um, year to year they may add things they think are are relevant. The magic of the budgets. You, the listeners cannot see the fun hand gestures I'm making. Um, well, and of course they haven't finished the debate over tax cuts. Well, and we that that's I think what the biggest thing they didn't get done, and I didn't know if we wanted to save that, but heck. You know, let's throw caution to the wind and just dive right in. Well, and and the thing about tax cuts is the, uh, as I have said on the podcast before, the tax cutting side of it and the budget spending side have to match. It has to balance at the end of the day. And they did pass a bill with about three hundred and ten million dollars worth of tax cuts over three years, but there's another roughly one point. $2 billion worth of tax cuts over three years that are kind of out there. They're in the, they have the conference committee reports, but they haven't gotten their final votes on them. 
And one of those bills contains a proposal to phase out the sales tax on groceries Jason, over three years. Our resident, I was going to say our resident grocery expert, but that makes it sound like you did that. What's that game show where they run around the grocery store? Oh, stuff yeah, the yeah. Shelf? Supermarket I, something. I, I did once work at Walmart in Iola. Uh, so I did you did you did you sat groceries and the like? I I did whatever I was told to do. So I pushed carts, bagged groceries, uh, helped unload the semi. Once worked in the hot food case and shaved the deli meat. And now you've graduated to the point where you just write about whatever the legislature tells you to do. <laughs> yes. Uh, but our grocery tax expert, uh, walk us through a little bit what this new proposal looks like because we have been through so many iterations of this. Kind of where have we where have we landed on the potential deal? Well, so the deal is a clean bill in that it is solely focused on the food sales tax and issues closely related to it. Uh, it, it started kind of as a proposal from House Republicans to cut it to 1.5% starting July 1st, then 0% the next year. Uh, Senate Republican leadership did not like that idea and eventually came back with, let's use this complicated formula to phase it out over about five years. They kind of combined those two ideas and decided, let's do a formula that cuts it from 6.5% to 4% starting January 1st, then to 2% the following January 1st, then to 0% the next January 1st. Uh, the reason for the delay was because grocers need time and the Department of Revenue needs time uh, to implement it. It does not need that much time to implement it. Uh, and the reason for the phase-out was to make the tax cut not as big right away. Uh, cutting the food sales tax to 0% right away would be roughly $500 million a year. Well, and, and also doing it over three years theoretically gives them time to reevaluate in the intervening two years if they, you know, God for uh, have a change of heart, or or maybe there'll be someone new in the governor's mansion that would yeah. want a change of heart. We don't know. Part of the fear is uh, some Republicans have expressed concern that this food sales tax is akin to the brownback tax cuts, which cut income tax rates. Uh, and the revenue from income tax is much more substantially than the, what the food sales tax cut would do. Uh, and some of these Republicans were the ones who came in in 2017 and had to override the governor's veto and undo Brownback's signature tax cuts. It and is, they don't want to go back to that time of difficult it decisions. Is, it is interesting to hear Republicans talk about being cautious because of what happened during those years. Of course, Laura Kelly got elected governor after largely running against the Brownback fiscal legacy. Um, the, the Kansas tax cutting experiment of those years gained a lot of national notoriety 
and you had a lot of you had Republicans in other states. Nikki Haley, who was then governor of South Carolina, for example, said when she was pursuing tax cuts, said we're not going to mess it up like Kansas or something like that. Kansas became kind of the example of how not to do supply side economics because of what happened. The interesting thing to me, the one, the the one the 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 reason the brownback tax cuts have this reputation is that they had one element that they really had trouble figuring out how much revenue it cost the state or on the other end if you want if you're a conservative how much money people saved out there it was the it was a provision that if you had a an llc or that kind of small business you didn't have to pay state income taxes on the pass-through income, some of those businesses, the income goes to your personal income as, as your income, and that was exempt from income taxation. Um, there was a lot of debate at the time about what that was going to cost, and I don't think the state ever really got a good handle on it. And so as a result, you kept having these rolling, persistent budget deficits, I mean, there's an argument about why we had those rolling persistent budget deficits, but the state did. And uh, what's interesting is as soon as literally the same month they over, they overrode a brownback veto reversing most uh, and reversed most of the uh, tax cutting experiment, literally the same month, it was June of 2017, that's when the state started having this really pretty unprecedented string of tax collections exceeding expectations. It's been 58 months, almost five years since that happened, and in all but three months, tax collections have exceeded expectations, including the last 20 months consecutively. So, I mean the the fiscal picture that the state has seen since that moment is a complete contrast to the fiscal picture it saw immediately before it and you know you i'm sure i'm sure if you ask four economists you'll get six different opinions <laughs> as to what's going on um that's how state house math works yes um but the the point is the the state is really flush with cash and there's a desire to cut taxes there is nothing in the mix quite like that llc exemption um although there are one or two small pieces that apparently they don't have a great estimate on something like the food sales tax they're fairly certain now of course if grocery prices rise then the revenue loss is going to be greater from that because it's a percentage of your grocery bill. That's what you pay in tax. And tax cut-wise, we do have two other bills. Uh, the first, I believe, HB 2239, that, that one was a compilation of 29 other tax cut <laughs> bills that the conference committee threw together. It was mostly smaller tax cuts or less controversial items 
aside from a bigger property tax cut for residences. Uh, and that's the, you know, that is the interesting, that, that tax, that tax was imposed in the early 1990s to fund schools. It originally was, the tax was $35 for every thousand dollars of assessed valuation on your home. And you, the first $20,000 of value was exempt. Um, then in the mid-1990s, uh, when the state was doing well, they cut it back to $20 per $1,000 of assessed valuation. Colloquially known as the 20 mil levy. Yes, I'm trying to avoid the mill levy phrase. Um, and also the the parsley sprig on the tax platter that always gets used as because they we have to pass it every year to fund schools adequately but it usually gets slapped on as leverage onto some larger tax what 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 is interesting is the state went through all these battles over school funding that that you know the the schools argued about they weren't getting enough money well had the legislature not cut that mill levy back to 20 those funds would have been there and legislators were warned about that at the time but the allure of doing a significant property tax cut was was pretty big i mean generally the the wisdom in the state houses is that of all the taxes the state or local governments impose the property tax is the most hated because you pay it you pay it whether you have any income or not. It's it's based on the value of your house, and you know your house can go up in value, you know, because the uh, you know the appraiser compares it to comparable sales, and you hear all the time people saying, "Oh, I could never get that for my house if I tried to sell it." So people people hate property taxes, and in some ways, that's a tax that you know it's kind of a holdover from the from the nineteenth century way of funding government and i'm also sure farmers are not big fans of the property tax the the way this specific tax cut got into the bill was uh, i believe it was supposed to increase the twenty thousand dollar assessed valuation exemption to sixty thousand uh house negotiators said that at that big of a tax cut we need to put it in the other tax bill that's a compilation of bigger ticket and more controversial items the senate negotiators really wanted it in the bill of less controversial stuff that was almost guaranteed to get through so the compromise was cut it from 60,000 to 40,000 which doubles the level of exemption on your residential property for your but if if that's interesting because the state to 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 comply with the school funding orders from the Kansas Supreme Court, the state will have to, in theory, backfill that revenue with with general fund tax dollars. Um, now, you know there there are still post COVID nineteen the heart of that pandemic. There are still fewer students, you know. Um, in public schools right now, so the the level that that the state might have to spend to hit those uh, marks from the court case might be a little down. But 
if the state takes away the property, this money from that statewide property tax levy, it's kind of obligated to backfill with other other tax revenues. I mean, absent some other, you know, litigation and and some other court ruling, and so that's that's kind of interesting to to watch. But again, people generally just really hate property taxes. To to tie the tax part up in a neat neat bow, we had one tax cut bill. It passed. It's waiting on the governor's signature. If not, it had enough votes to have an override. We have a bigger tax cut bill that has yet to be debated on the floor, and then we have the food sales tax cut bill that maybe will happen, maybe won't. Yeah. Uh, and since you mentioned education funding... A uh, great, great, great transition yes. there. Yes. Uh, Andrew, what can you tell us about the Parents' Bill of Rights and transgender athletes? So there are, I think, three big items that they they did pass, and two of them are the ones you mentioned. Bill banning transgender athletes in girls' and women's sports, which we talked about on the air. Uh, interesting to note very quickly, that bill does not have a veto-proof majority, the Senate is a bit of an open question because its fate is very much dependent on what mood Senator John Dahl, a Republican in Garden City, feels like when he gets out of bed in the morning. But the House was not even close to having a veto-proof majority. Well, and, and what's interesting about that is I, I talked to Senator Dahl. Uh, it must have been about two in the morning on Saturday, April 2nd. And he said he go he acknowledged that he just goes back and forth on it. And he has voted for it. He has voted against it. Well, and, and that, means it, 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 that means it's a close call for him. And one of the things that kind of bothers him is, is that this bill applies through K through six uh, elementary school kids. And, um, and so that's, that is an issue that prevents that bill from having probably uh, veto-proof majorities and in both chambers, um, I mean, the House is a little bit more of a question, um, and so, and and when the critics of that bill focus on it, they really focus on the idea that it applies; it could apply to kindergartners if there's a if club. There's a yeah, kindergarten kickball well, the, yeah, competition. The, the Keisha, the Kansas State High School Activities Association, does not oversee sports at that level. They start in the seventh grade, but the bill applies to like club sports and intramurals. So it's it's I'm my knowledge of kids sports uh, is in the past because my daughter's twenty seven, but. You know, the, the the question is, the argument you hear from uh, the supporters of the bill is, well, kids are going through puberty earlier. Um, you know, we want to make sure that we take care of this problem early. The critics of the bill say, you know, why, why, are, we, why are we going down to that level? So that's the struggle Senator Dahl is having. Well, and also the the Parents' Bill of Rights, it should be noted, which I think we've also talked about on here, a, a uh, they went with the Senate version, which was, I don't want to say more aspirational, but it, it kind of lays out a broad set of rights 
and just says school districts need to implement policies to meet them. It does not get as prescriptive as saying you have to outline specific curriculum materials on your website and provide certain access to them to parents, which is what the House version of the bill did. The Senate version has a little bit more wiggle room for districts, although districts still don't like the bill. I, I will be curious to see if that if that if the governor signs it because it is, as you say, more aspirational, whether conservatives will be back to get the more detailed um, the more detailed version of that. Well, the governor has been very critical of the idea. She told us that it is uh, it basically is a bill attacking teachers, although per usual, the governor does not comment on what she will do with legislation before she actually does something. You know, there was a time in the past when governors and their staff would comment on what they were doing with legislation. Those were the halicon days of the Kansas legislature. I think that was called the Jurassic Age, Andrew. (laughs) The pre-Twitter age? The pre-Twitter age. Yes, it was very definitely pre-Twitter. It was pre-internet, as a matter of fact. I know, you kids don't remember a time before the internet. Go ask your grandparents about it, kids. Yes, yes. Um, well, but we got the governor, though, I guess, on a day in which she was feeling particularly feisty because she, she was very critical of the idea and has been critical more broadly of the notion that the state needs to do anything with respect to things like critical race theory. Um, if she does veto it, there is not a veto-proof majority on that bill. The House was well short, um, and so was the Senate. And it included, interestingly enough, a lot of Western Kansas Republicans, Republicans who usually vote the party line on other social issues for for whatever reason were not as enamored with this. Uh, even Representative Bill Clifford of Garden City voted against this, and he ran in the primary for what is now Representative Tracy Mann's seat in Congress, the big first congressional district. It's a very conservative figure, and even he voted against it. So it's interesting uh, that that bill, you know, if the governor does veto it, we don't know yet, um, that is not one that they are going to be able to to get into law over her signature. Um and the, the final piece of legislation, which we should have a read by the end of the day, Monday, on what the governor is going to do on it, but it is a bill that would ban sanctuary cities in Kansas and really um, outline when a, a municipal identification card can be used. And not this, for voting under the bill. Not for voting. And the reason this is an issue is because the unified government, uh, Wyandotte County in Kansas City, Kansas, passed uh, earlier this year what is called the Safe and Welcoming Ordinance, and it limits cooperation for local law enforcement authorities with federal immigration authorities and also creates this uh, municipal ID card, which can be used to access local uh, services, even if you are a non-resident, which they say there is a lot of evidence to suggest that if you look at the demographics in the school system, versus census data, there are a lot of folks who are who are undocumented and, and maybe are slipping through the cracks. But uh, Republicans, most notably Attorney General Derek Schmidt, also running for governor, uh, we have to say, uh, don't like that don't like the idea that this could lead to a patchwork approach. They say federal government has dropped the ball on immigration policy, but there needs to be uniformity across the state in how these issues are dealt with. And uh, it's one of those situations where 
supporters of local control support local control right up until they don't. Uh, and you see this in both parties. Um, and it passed with a couple Democrats voting in favor, I believe veto-proof majorities in both chambers, but it will be interesting to see in the Senate. Well, and, and, and look, the, the immigration still is a big issue for the Republican base, and it, it spreads out wider than the Republican base. I mean, that's why... Um, that's why Donald Trump got the party's nomination in 2016. One of the big reasons is immigration. And, and, and there's always been this tension about immigration and, and, you know, the discussion of what's happening in the economy if you, if all of these immigrants are coming to the U.S. illegally, all of that. Um, and you're right, you people are for local control until they come up against come into an issue like guns or immigration. And, and we should note that also the city of Lawrence, uh, aka, and, and, right. aka Berkeley on the Caw, <laughs> uh, the People's Republic of Lawrence, sometimes as it's known, and Roland Park in yep. Johnson County have uh, ordinances about this. What what is an what is and, an, and the attorney general did not speak out against those. And we asked him about it after a hearing, and he said, "Well, the Lawrence one was during the pandemic. People missed, it. and for whatever reason, the safe and welcoming ordinance really has got a lot of people calling up his office and saying, is this legal?' And he thinks that there needs to be some sort of response. Well, but. and and you know that that the, there are those issues. I mean, there also is the the pragmatic issue of whether across the United States, whether law enforcement at the local level and then at the federal level has the capacity to try to deport everybody who's living in the U.S. illegally, whether it, whether there are enough people to go out and take all those folks into custody, uh, whether there are enough judges or hearing officers to run them through an immigration system, um, you know, just the sheer logistics. I think the number is, uh, the last number I remember seeing was 10 to 12 million people. Well, and we're also in a state, it should be pointed out, that really the only reason it is growing and this is is because of immigration to yeah. particularly the southwest corners of the state, folks going to work in the meatpacking plants, folks coming here to work any number of jobs, including Kansas City, Kansas. And I mean, that's a big chunk but, of the but, reason but the that point is, we've if, gained population. But the point is, if you're going to try to make a dent in this what if you view it as a problem and you're going to try to make a dent in it where do you begin do you just you know try to try to get everybody all every last person who's living in the u.s illegally out even if they're otherwise law-abiding citizens or do you prioritize um a group like people who commit felonies, for example, and and that's always that's always the debate in this, and and I think everybody here at the state level and at the local level pretty much acknowledge that the federal government has to do something, Congress, the president, they have to do something with immigration policy for all of this to to really work as smoothly as possible. And of course, Congress is 
in uh, is at an impasse over this issue. Thinking of immigration providing, <coughs> excuse me. Thinking of immigration providing workers to the state. Uh, we also had the food stamp uh, work training requirement mm-hmm. bill pass. Uh, the idea behind that was require people who are able-bodied adults without dependents receiving food stamps to go to a training program. The state has a voluntary program. This would make it mandatory for people who are not working 30 or more hours a week. And the stated goal was to move these people off of government benefits and into a job. Uh, Kansas has approximately 95,000 open jobs. It also has approximately 14,000 able-bodied adults without dependents who are receiving food stamps. So while it was kind of marketed as a solution to the open job problem, it would not uh, even, even fill if, half those jobs. Even if it worked as intended, which and, I know there is some debate over whether that even would and, accomplish any of those goals. And, and there's even split among supporters of whether the goal of this was to get people into the training programs where they could then build up the uh, experience and training necessary for some of those more uh, higher paying jobs, or whether this would in effect just kick people off of food stamps and that they wouldn't go to the training and that it wouldn't have any benefit. Well, and and, and that's what critics, uh, there was a, you know, there under uh, Brownback, Governor Brownback, there was a, a similar effort to tighten up the rules on uh, cash assistance, and that was always that was the the debate over whether folks were actually. I mean, it's not it's not just that you put somebody in any job. It's it's you get them into a job that pays well enough that pays a living wage so that they're in theory above the poverty line. I mean, if if you just push somebody into a job that doesn't pay very much and they're still below the poverty line, I mean, I guess we can talk about you know how they have the dignity of work and and all of that. Um but the, there's a question about how much you're actually making their lives better. And I mean, under, under this program, I mean, Democrats have said that it's an attack on the working poor. If you had, if you were working 29 hours a week, you would now be required to go to a training program, which may effectively require you to quit your job to go to training. And now you don't have a job at all. Yeah. And I believe that uh, food banks were against this bill because it's going to effectively shift the burden from food stamps to food banks at a time when they're already feeling the pinch because of rising food costs yeah a lot to keep track of we will be doing the best that we can in the weeks to come as session winds to a close at the topeka capital journal and you can find us on all the social media out uh, platforms or in print yes we still do that uh like us on facebook or follow us on Twitter at CJ Online. And Jason, if they want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? At Jason underscore Tid. And I my baseball takes and 
Taco Opinions are at Andrew Ball, B-A-H-L. May I recommend El Camino Real on the 7th Street Traffic Way in Kansas City, Kansas? Yes, yes, you can. John, where can they find your stories and taco opinions? I I don't generally do taco opinions because I like all tacos, but um, I am at uh, on Twitter at APJDHanna, and my stories are at www.apnews.com backslash. We're doing the hand mo- movement Kansas. That's where you find my stuff. And I did, I have to say, Andrew, I was in KCK recently on the taco trail and i i can't remember the name of the place but uh they had tacos made with the meat was hogs ground hog stomach it was actually quite good you really uh you live life on the edge Jim. well i would say if you get a chance to eat a taco with ground hog stomach on it you gotta try it <laughs> and if you're in kansas city kansas <laughs> or, go or on just, the taco trail yes go on the taco trail um and while you drive to kansas city kansas you can listen to all our back episodes of chilling in the state house on spotify apple podcasts google play or we post them at cjonline.com whenever we have new ones but for now it's just about the weekend and i think we're all going to go eat some tacos now that we're hungry right guys yes sounds good Have a great weekend, everyone. We will see you back next week. Same time, same place. See y'all.